0: I love our bumpers that we use to sort of like introduce the sermon, and uh, Jordan and Cassie have done most of them, and they just got back from a honeymoon in Hawaii. Talk about suffering for Jesus, right? So uh, we welcome them back into the fold. They've been gone for like two whole weeks of of sunny, wonderful paradise Hawaii, and uh, I think we're having snowpocalypse number three tomorrow, so welcome back, guys. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 1 through 5 today. Continuing in our series in Colossians. And as you're turning there, if you have a Bible, uh, turn there. If you don't have one, we have a stack of Bibles down the middle aisles, and we would love for you to take one of those, grab it, read along with us. More importantly, you can have it as a gift as you uh, you read along and participate in the service today. Um, I want to encourage you. Even before you come to church, take a, you know, take a look at this, this book of Colossians. It's four chapters long, and uh, you can read it probably straight through in about 20 minutes. Take some time to, uh, um, to, to look at it and be familiar with the word as you, as you come in. There's a couple of things that you do when you do that. Firstly, uh, I think you can, can pretty much guess where I'm going. Uh, you will immerse yourself in the word, and you'll be edified just from reading it. But more importantly, you get to keep me honest as I as I work through these scripture verses and uh, and sort of bring out these things. And I think you'll have a sense of where we're going in the following weeks as we unfold what Paul is saying to the the church at Colossae and more important, what he's saying to us by by the spirit. So I would encourage you to do that um, each week and the more as we are going along. Um, We're going to talk today in these first five verses of chapter two about the theme of persuasive arguments. You'll see those particular words in verse 4, and we're actually going to start in verse 4. We're going to read all five verses, but we're going to start in verse 4 during the sermon. So if you already turned there, um, we're going to read these out loud together. You'll, you'll notice I usually have glasses on, right? I broke them. Check it out. I can't even see up here. <laughs> so if I, if I say a wrong word, forgive me. Keep going. All right? Don't you say a wrong word because I say a wrong word. I broke my glasses, and I I was too vain to wear my wife's reading glasses, because hers, they're just bedazzled, if you know it. (laughs) They're bedazzled, so this is what you got. Here, let's read together. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may dilute you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pause to say thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the breath that we breathe, for the lives, lives that we live Thank you for the gathering of your church today, not just in here, in this place, but all over Kingstown and Alexandria. God, we pray that that you would help us to have ears to hear what you would say, that you'd give us eyes to see what you would have for us individually, but also for us corporately in this passage of scripture as Paul exhorts, exhorts us, challenges us about persuasive arguments. More importantly, God, we pray that you would help us to see the gospel in a new light. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You ever have doubts? All right. Y'all are talking back today. I like that. All right. Perhaps you are a Christian that never doubts. You are just firm in your faith um, that you don't have uncertainty about life. I would tell you, if you would classify yourself as one of those kinds of people, you are in the minority. Most of us in this room, most of us in, in the Christian world have doubts. We don't perfectly believe Even the things that God tells us in the Bible, but more importantly, even the things that we think we believe well, we don't believe them often as as we should. I think it's fair to say that most people have doubts, and that's not a bad thing. I think having doubts and uncertainty oftentimes can drive us to research and study and be investigative about those things that we don't quite know so well or that we have questions about. At least it should do that. Now, I recently read Tim Keller's brilliant book. I say brilliant because it was an excellent book. It's called The Reason for God, and uh, it's a New York Times bestseller. He wrote it, I think, in about 2005 or 2006. And in that, he talks about seven reasons for doubt or the seven persuasive arguments that people give against Christianity. Okay? That's the first half of the book. The second half of the book is Reasons for Faith. And uh, I'm not going to articulate these exactly how Tim Keller does, but I wanted to start our talk today by just reminding us of some of the persuasive arguments out there that we hear all the time and sort of categorize them in about five different areas and the doubts that are associated with them. The first is this idea that uh, of comparative religions argument, the persuasive argument of comparative religions. Now, a person that would be pushing this kind of a argument would say, you know, there just can't be one true religion. You ever heard that? There, there just can't be one true religion. I mean, You have the Buddhists and the Hindus and, you know, and, and the Christians, and uh, what about the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses? I, I mean, there's all these different faiths, and they're all worshiping one God, right? Aren't they all worshiping The same God, the people that would lean towards this persuasive argument would think that all religions teach the same thing. You know, one of the noted, um, noted philosophers that uh, espouses this is a guy named John Hicks. And he has written a book that says God has many names. He uh, he takes the common denominator approach. There's one God and there's many ways to him. Persuasive argument of the comparative religions argument. Another would be intellectual or academic argument. And you can pretty much guess that these are the the brainiacs in our world. And they say stuff like that science has disproved Christianity. Lumped into people that have this kind of persuasive argument would be the likes of those who believe in evolution or what's called the new atheism. One of the proponents of this is a guy by the name of Richard Dawson. And he says these, these harsh words harsh in terms of how I take them he says faith is a great cop-out the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence and so he's basically saying that if you have faith in a God that you can't see you're not only failing to use your intellect to to research to find out he doesn't exist but you're probably just is stupid I mean that's really what he's he's saying in uh, in lesser words another argument would would be the tolerance argument and people that espouse this would say, if you're a Christian, you're a bigot to start with. You are intolerant. And and people that would espouse this kind of a view are, are, are looking at Christians and the way that they say there's only one God. There's only one way to him. It's through Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you can't go to heaven. You're going to go to hell. It's that intolerant um, thing in us as Christians that tells everyone else there's one way, only one way. And if you don't go that way, then. You're out of there. Another argument would be the moral argument. And this this sort of has uh, this feel to it. The church is responsible for so much injustice. They look at um, what we see in the Bible as God is is fighting on behalf of the nation of Israel and just decimating cities to get them into this promised land that he's going to give them. They look at the Crusades in the Middle Ages and see how in the name of God, Christians, sanction war to uh, to to reestablish the holy lands for themselves. The moral argument also says this. How could a good God allow suffering? And you know, this is one that trumps us all up, doesn't it? Don't, have you ever thought that? I mean, there's so much suffering and not just suffering as in I stubbed my toe. It hurts. But think about people all over the world that whose plight is so much different than ours. They, they, they enter life with a deficit. They enter life completely unlike the, the prosperity that we live in in America. We wonder how a God could allow such tragedies as all the things that we see happening. Not just wars, but the natural disasters that happen. And that trips us up sometime. And then the last one, this isn't the last argument, but the last one in terms of what I'm giving you today is the popular culture argument. And this one says that you can't take the Bible literally. I mean, and people that would espouse this kind of a view are, are, are thinking like this. They're looking at all the things that you see in the Bible. That God took a, a million people and he, he parted waters of the Red Sea and he like had these people walk on dry land. I mean, how in the world could that happen? They're looking at the story of Noah where God sent it and caused it to rain 40 days and 40 nights and... And then he saved one family through that. And the rest of the world is supposed to come from this family. Or they're looking at the story of Jonah, a man getting swallowed up with a whale. It's like, can this stuff really be true? I mean, what idiot would believe these kinds of things? And then on the other side of this popular culture argument is this idea that considers it culturally obsolete and socially regressive, especially in terms of how the Bible paints women in the society in the ancient societies of the Bible days. You know these are these are just a few of the persuasive arguments that come from outside of Christianity. There are actually some that come from supposedly inside of Christianity. I already mentioned the Jehovah's Witnesses. What do they believe? Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses would claim that they are the true Christians. They are the true witnesses to the Lord God Jehovah. And of course, the difference between a Jehovah's Witness and an evangelical Christian is that the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that God comes as one God in three persons. God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. They don't believe in a Trinitarian God. And then you have the church, of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, some of the most upright people that you will find in all of the world. And the Mormons would say that they are the true people of of God they're the true Christians, of course the the, the the Mormons add to the Bible that we use the revelation of Joseph Smith, the book of Mormon. so who who's right and then you I, I don't even know how to classify these people, but the proponents I'll say of a prosperity gospel, and proponents of prosperity gospel say you know they read the words of scripture, they say a, a person should be in good health and they should prosper sort of like you know. Healthy, wealthy and wise kind of thing. But this is what they would add to that. They would say, if you aren't prospering, then something is wrong with your faith. And and is is that right? If I'm not doing well in my life, does it mean that something is wrong with my faith? And lastly, I would tell you you probably haven't even heard of this one, but this argument is the Roman Catholic apologetics. And this is a newer persuasive argument that holds that. a group of Roman Catholics are trying to convince other Protestants that what we believe is wrong and that the way of the Catholic Church is the, the, the way of true Christianity. And that that is uh, particularly because uh, apostolic succession has come through the apostles, through the line of popes, to the, the pope that we have today. So who's right? And I would ask you, you know, what is the, what is the point in all this? What is the point I'm trying to make? Um, I think the point is we're surrounded by all kind of persuasive arguments. They're all around us. We hear them all the time. And every once in a while, it makes us tilt our head and our ears are turned. It's like, you know what? That sounds kind of right. I mean, they're not saying that Jesus is actually Jesse and he's wearing a, you know, he's coming as, as something that the Bible doesn't espouse. They're giving us a persuasive argument, which means it has a little bit of plausibility in it. That makes it kind of sort of true. And it just has one little element of untruth that would cause even the most devout Christian to trip up a little bit and even question whether what they believe is right or not. And here's the here's the here's the real point. And in, in for all of us, I think every once in a while we come across these possible arguments that for any number of reasons could hinder us in our attempts to follow Jesus. And that's why I think it's important to know what you know And to know it well. And we're going to talk about that today. I think what's also interesting in in regards to this is our tendency is to think that um, think that days our day right now is worse in terms of the things that we hear and people confusing us with what they believe than it was before. But I would tell you what Paul is writing here in Colossians is no different than what we experience today. They they have this, you know, probably different words, a different packaging. But I think. You know, Paul is getting at from this text that uh, the persuasive arguments that they were possibly being deluded by are very much the same context that we would experience in our day to day. And I think we're going to hear that um, as we come about. So in uh, verse four of uh, chapter two, Paul says, I say this so no one will delude you you with persuasive arguments. I think Paul's concern for the Colossians is. And therefore, God's concern for us is that we can be deluded. We can be set off course by persuasive arguments, by fine sounding things that trip us up, that sound kind of sort of right, but aren't really really right. And we can't sort it out. And so what Paul is what Paul does in his passages, as he does throughout all of Colossians, is he refocuses on refocuses us on, on Jesus. And so don't miss that. Paul is taking an argument of of truth that's happening in this Colossian church, and he is reorienting them on Jesus. All right. I know this is going on. I know you're hearing this. I know you're seeing this. But here's the truth. And his name is Jesus. So that's what that's what he's going to do for us today. And so backing up in chapter uh, two, verse one, Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. I think Paul's being very vulnerable here. He is as vulnerable in other of his letters, but he is being kind of sort of vulnerable here with the Colossians. He's letting them see his heart. He's wearing his heart on his sleeve so to speak. He's letting the Colossians into his life and he tells them outright. He said, "I'm carrying a burden for you. There's something that's weighing on me in regards to you. In fact, I'm struggling with it so much so that as I pray for you, I'm laboring in my prayers, that's what he's saying in this, in this first verse, and we find that I think he's conveying two things. I think the assumption here is that leadership is a struggle. His leadership of the church is a struggle, and the second thing I think he would tell us is the the thing that he's struggling with so seriously in his prayers is is this issue of the arguments that they're possibly being um, persuaded by. As an aside, the community group leaders and I met about two weeks ago as we come together sometime for fellowship and uh, just to encourage each other and also uh, so I can challenge them a little bit. And uh, in this one particular night, two weeks ago, I challenged them uh, in 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5 talks about shepherds, care, caring for their flock, overseeing them. And the, the truth is, whether you are a leader in the church or a leader in the army or leader in corporate America, or whatever you find yourself leading, leadership can be hard. Leadership can be a struggle. Think about it. Think about the things that you have to do when you're a, a leader. In, in, in terms of 1 Peter 5, he says a leader is supposed to sort of oversee all the things that are going on. He says a leader is supposed to be humble. A leader is supposed to, to give of himself by serving. A leader is supposed to set an example, to lead a self Examine life before God, but also to open his life up for other people. And I think Paul is saying here that leadership can be a struggle because sometimes I have to give more of myself than I really care to. I mean, I'm just being honest. A leader gives more of himself than he ha- than he sometimes wants to. A leader sometimes has to care about things going on in other people's lives that he ordinarily Any of his own self wouldn't care about. And I think Paul is saying that. He said, I don't even know some of you. I haven't even met any of you. Yet God has put this burden on me for you that while I'm praying, I can't stop thinking about you and what's going on where you are. So much so, not just you, but also uh, those in Laodicea, this whole Lycus River Valley. He's saying that God has put them on his heart. Leadership is hard. The word struggle there is the Greek word agon. We get the English word agony. Anybody that's in agony. I mean, you're grabbing your leg because your leg hurts. You're in physical pain or you're grabbing your head because you're trying to think through something or something in life has just plagued you. And you've got some a mental struggle going on. And so he says he said, I, I'm having some agony in regards to you. That's what Paul is trying to convey to us. And then really what he's saying here is I'm struggling, almost I'm struggling in my prayers for you. Almost uh, when we get to chapter four, verse 12, he's going to mention Epaphras. And these are the words that he says about pa- Epaphras. He says, Epaphras is always struggling, that Greek word agon, for the Colossians in his prayers. So Paul is saying in verse two and three, as we continue on, that he's praying that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's a lot of words there. I mean, that's a lot in there. So we're going to unpack uh, unpack it just a bit. So Paul's saying in the first part of verse two, I'm praying that you may be encouraged in your heart. You ever said that to somebody? Kind of like you got a brother and uh, he's he's sharing his heart with you and you pat him on the back. Brother, I'm praying that you'll be encouraged in your heart. It sounds like Christianese, doesn't it? Christian ease being like, you know, just sayings that we say, but we don't really mean it. Y'all do that. You know, you do. I do it. We all do it. Paul isn't doing this here. You know, the word encourage doesn't just mean comfort. Pass somebody on the back and make make them feel good. It's not cliche. It's not cliche ish. Rather, it's the word strengthen or fortify. He says, I want you to be kind of girded up in your heart against all those things that would come against you. And then he uses he uses the word um, heart. OK, in the heart, heart, here's the Greek word cardia. OK. And so what Paul is in a lot of times when we see the word heart, we think is that, you know, the organ that pumps, you know, inside our chest that's sending blood all over. But really, every time we see the word heart, most of the time in the Bible, it's talking about not just your emotions, but your will. One of my favorite authors, Paul, uh, Paul, Dr. Paul Tripp. Okay, huge mustache and just a great author and former pastor. He says, Heart is the central causal core of your personhood. And so your heart is not that that, that thing that beats, that pumps blood all over your your body. It's that place in the depth of you that helps you make the, the decisions that you make. It's why you do the things you do, the decisions that you make. Okay, so Paul is saying, I want you to be fortified, to be strengthened. In the very core of who you are. That's what he's saying here to these Colossians. He's not praying cliche. He's not trying to boost their self-esteem. He's praying that they would be comforted, that they would have hope beyond hope, that they would believe. Um, He's challenging them in terms of how they go about their lives and how they, you know, how they handle the gospel and the attacks against the gospel. And you can't read these words as a leader, back to this idea of leadership, without buying into what Paul is saying. Okay, he's leading people um, all over the known church world, and God is, is giving him a struggle for them. And much the same way, God gives any leader a, a, a sense of struggle, of care, and of longing for those that he leads. And this has led me, I, I would just be honest with you, into praying for you guys this week. And I pray simply this, that God would strengthen you in the places where life is hard. You know, God would give you inner courage that when life attacks you, just stuff happening, that when family members don't do what family members are supposed to do, that when the job is hard, that when the car's not working, that when the money's not right, that life's attacks, that you would be strong in the inner part of who you are. But more than that, that when you hear these things that tickle your ears, that kind of sort of sound right, make you tilt your head and lean a little bit, that you would not be deluded and persuaded by it. I said, God, would you please help them in those places where they're most vulnerable, in their marriages, in their lives with their friends, in their workplaces, when life gets hard and we're subjected, when we're, when, when we're subject to giving in or believing something that the Bible doesn't espouse, God, would you, would you gird them up? Would you make them strong in their inner man? And I think that's an effective prayer. And I hope God answers that in your life. But what Paul is getting to here is another idea. It's the idea of community. And I've been praying that you would experience community. You know, this is one of our values as a church. But I think community is a biblical value. We see in the Bible and really even in this passage, Paul is getting at the idea that we can be strengthened, encouraged, comforted, all those things that we can gain hope and not be you know, felt like we're isolated and all alone when we are in community with God's people. There's a statistic here that uh, there's over 20 million people who claim to be followers of Jesus that intentionally don't go to church. And then there's another statistic that says among um, there's another group of people who just church hop, which means they're never they're never fully committed to a church. They never serve. They never give. They never sow themselves in the church. They basically go from one to one, just just consuming. And that is totally against the spirit of the New Testament. And so Paul is saying here, and in many words, I want you to not only be cursing your heart, I want you to be knit together. And that's the other part of this verse two here. I want you to be knit together in love. Anybody here have a, a grandmother, an aunt, a mom, a dad that, that knits, that crochets? Now, All right. So Josh, my grandmother used to knit. I don't, know, I don't know a lot about knitting, but from what I can remember from my deceased grandmother, actually she used to crochet. So she'd take this needle, and she'd have all kind of yarn. It'd be different colors, different textures. Some of it looks like yarn. Some of it looks more like thread, so it has different weights to it. And she would take this needle, and she would, like, move it in and out. And then she'd take a little piece of yarn, and all of a sudden it would expand, And then it it has different shapes and different designs in it. she's adding different colors. And then all of a sudden, days later, it would turn into this beautiful hat or blanket or shawl or something. And so Paul is saying much like a a person would knit something and he would take the intricacies of of yarn and thread that has different um, viscosity. Is that the right word? That's probably liquid, right? Liquid. All right. So not liquid. Density, weight. Uh, beauty, just the diversity of, of the things that you can do with yarn and thread. Where did I get the viscosity from? And Nick was like, Mm-mm, "That's it. That's not it." That's it. <laughs> all right, Nick. So, I'm, persuasive argument—you—you you could never get me with a persuasive argument of, of intellect. I'm just not that kind of person. All right, so I'm just going to tell you. I said, "You might know it all, but I know Jesus. So just leave me alone." <laughs> Paul is saying, "I want you to be knit together, like like you would do." All these different diversities of thread made into a blanket that shows the beauty of of what this thread was meant to be. And I think this is you know, this idea is one of the most challenging aspects of Christianity that we come across, because this is how it usually works. Okay, so say we're outside of the church. We're, We're not a Christian. We're not following Jesus. And by God's grace, He, you know, he sends someone that just loves God and that person talks to you. They talk a little bit about the Bible. They help you to understand who Jesus is. You start going to church with them. And uh, by God's grace, again, you come to faith. You, You start trusting in Jesus. You start reading your Bible. And then you hear that this church has small groups and community groups or fellowship groups and that you're expected to go to one. And 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 that trips some people up for a number of reasons. Firstly, because, I mean, it causes you to open up your life to to people that you don't know that well and then there's this whole idea of so you want me to I mean I mean who has time to I mean I got a a long work day and I got to come home and you know and and sort of just like make dinner or or go and just spend some time with people that I don't know and just the whole uncomfortability of of sometimes just being vulnerable around other people and I would say "Mm, yeah that's that's really what the Bible espouses. that's really what Paul is encouraging us to do here so that we would not be deluded by persuasive arguments. And I would tell you, this is also a prayer that I would have for you, that you would not fall, that you would not fall prey to the, the, the meism, um, isolationist, lone ranger American mentality of what it means to be a person, individual, but also what it means to be a Christian. That's come into how we view Christianity. Our American individualism has tainted what we believe. About Christianity. Paul is saying he's saying, I want you to be knitted, knitted through and through, because there you display the beauty of God when you're together. But also you're able to. Not be persuaded about the things that come your way when they come your way. My hope is that we would be a church that would express the community of God, not just on Sunday, but but as we scatter, I see the pattern of the New Testament church in Acts 2, that they came and they gathered together on Sunday, but also they scattered. And they were of one accord, eating, breaking bread in each other's houses and meeting the needs of the congregation. I love how um, the Gospel of John says in John 13, 35, that they that other people outside of, G, outside of the Christianity knew that they were followers of Jesus by the love that they showed. You had people from all different walks of life, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnicities blended together as a family of God. And, you know, just that stuff didn't happen. It didn't happen in those days. Sometimes it doesn't happen in our day as well. Hebrews 10, 25 says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. God wants us to be a community. More than that, he wants us to be a hospital of broken, broken, hurt people because. That's who we are. And if it's not you, if you don't claim that somebody in your family is broken and hurt. They need to come to the hospital. They need to come to the hospital and meet Jesus and get and get healed. You know, a lot of times we mistake affinity for community. Affinity is uh, I'm going to go find people that look like me, that have the same income as me, that have the same number of kids as me. They live in my neighborhood. Not li- living in a neighbor- neighborhood is good. But I have this group of people around me, my closest friends, even if they're Christians, all look like me. And that's called not community. That's called affinity. And the Bible doesn't espouse that either. It's OK. You're not sinning. But what the Bible wants you to do is he wants it to be a tapestry of his beauty. Because that's what heaven's going to be like. When we get to the new heaven, new earth, it's going to look just like that. And I don't want you all to be surprised. Don't be surprised by heaven. All right. I beat that up a little bit. And so that's what the text is saying in the rest of verse two, that you can't even understand the full riches of Jesus without experiencing true community. Don't don't get that. Don't miss that, guys. And So Paul continues praying, continues praying that the Colossians would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Again, these are a lot of words. There's A lot of words here. We're not going to spend a whole bunch of time here. But I think he's saying in the midst of doubting, in the midst of being bombarded by persuasive arguments against Christianity, we can have assurance. You know what assurance is? It's complete certainty. It's like I got a lot of things going on in my life that I'm not sure about. But what I am sure about is I have complete certainty of the hope that I have in God, that I have complete certainty. I have assurance of what I believe. He's saying that you can have complete certainty of what God has called you to do individually and what he's called us to do as a corporate body of believers. And I think he's pointing us to that this key to to certainty, this key to this assurance that we can have as believers of God is knowledge. It's not just some, you know, plain old knowledge, just opening a book and trying to gurgitate, uh, trying to um, what is the word? inculcate what the book is saying. My words are tripping up. Y'all help me out. He's saying it's knowledge of Christ. It's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's knowledge of Christ. And here's the clarifying point here. Um, you know, all of us are different. Some of us are absolutely indifferent to knowledge whatsoever. We don't read books. We don't read newspapers. We want some we want all of the information that we that we gather to be verbal. I'm gonna to listen to a book, I'm gonna to listen to the radio, I'm gonna get my news from the television, and somebody's gonna tell me that. And I'm and I'm not beating up on you, I'm just saying we're just different people. And then you have other people who are absolute brainiacs, and they, I mean, they just anything that they can read, any and everything, they're just they're eating it up, okay? So much so that they would they would start worshiping the knowledge that they have. And that's why Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up. And so Paul is saying, I don't want you to have knowledge for knowledge's sake. I want you to have knowledge because that's the doorway into wisdom. And you find true wisdom in Jesus. True wisdom is found in Jesus. And so in Colossians, uh, uh, verse three, which is the climax of Paul's prayer, he's saying Jesus is it's Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you all seen The Hobbit, The Hobbit movie. Uh, I'm thinking about the second one. And so. Hobbit movie, Desolation of Smog, And you've got the, the, the dwarf contingent with Bilbo and um, what's the wizard's name? Gandalf. Gandalf. And they're on this trek. And they're on this trek. They go to the, the, the mountain, the, the dwarf mountain, Erebor. Okay? Inside Erebor is this sleeping dragon. And they show this scene where inside this dragon, he's just like covered in gold, gold coins, gold trinkets, gold cups, gold, everything. And so inside this really inside this mountain filled with gold is all the wealth of the dwarf kingdom. Okay, and they're going because everything that they want in life really is represented by this mountain hidden inside, um, kept by this dragon. And I can't help but think of that when I think of this idea of Paul saying in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And so what I think Paul is wanting us to get at is, you know, there's a lot of ways we can search for smartness and intellect. But if it's outside of looking for it in Jesus, then you're wasting your time. These, these, These the dwarves. They thought that life was going to be full by chasing that dragon out and getting the riches back. And so, in a sense, everything of exceptional value they placed, you know, at Erebor. Paul is saying everything of exceptional value for us is in Jesus. He's the repository. It's like Jesus is, is holding all the wisdom and knowledge. In the whole world. And to get even a little bit of it, you got to go to and through him to get it. And so, you know, so so what's the so what about that? What's Paul saying? I think to sum all this up, Paul is telling us to be to avoid being deluded by persuasive arguments is knowing Jesus. How do you how do you escape searching for something, even wisdom um, and not being led astray? He says, All that you need to know about life and life that would lead to fulfillment and wisdom and knowledge and intellect is found in Jesus. In him is everything of exceptional value. And so the question for us that follows that is, is how? How does knowing Jesus keep me from being swayed by persuasive arguments? And I think to figure that out, you got to go. You got you can't just start a new test. You got to go back. And so I want to do a little excursus just for a couple seconds, and go to Proverbs. Proverbs is one of my favorite books of the Bible. When I became a Christian uh, at West Point back in 1985, uh, the guy that mentored me, he taught me to read Proverbs. He said, just, he said, read a proverb a day, not just one proverb. Read a chapter of Proverbs for every day. And he said, you know, the Proverbs is the book of life. And now I, we can't go over the story of it, but basically, you know, behind Proverbs is, is King Solomon. He was a young man, had just taken over his father David's kingdom, and as a young man, he went to worship God and God showed up and God asked him, what would you what would you have me give you? And Solomon says, give me wisdom so I know how to lead this big kingdom my dad, my dad gave me. And God gave him wisdom. And God said, because Solomon didn't ask for riches and goodness of life. He gave not only wisdom, but he gave him, you know, everything that he would ever want to, to lead his kingdom. And what we read in Proverbs is really the the result of that. It's the manifestation of the wisdom that Solomon has. It's the book book. Of life, And so uh, we're going to read the first uh, 10 verses here. I'm going to read from the screen because I can't even see this Bible. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my, uh, my commands with you, making your heart attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it, as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice, watching over, his way, watching over the way of his saints, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity. Every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. I think it's a. Uh, You know, this is one of the great themes of the Bible is that as followers of Jesus, we should be pursuing wisdom. And I made fun of the person that that receives information verbally, vocally, rather than just reading it. But however you get it, the assumption of Scripture is that you got to be pursuing it. Wisdom is you can't just lay on your bed and say, Lord, give me wisdom. And he's going to like, you know. It it, it doesn't happen for us like it happened for Solomon. Not for all of us. For most of us, we got to open the pages of this book and, and read some of the words and let those words get into our spirit and let the words change us. And that's what Proverbs 2 is telling us, is that these words can change us if we expose ourselves to them as we read them, as we listen to it, as we let it minister to us. It's going to change us and it's going to lead us into that place that God that God would have us. Your Proverbs is skill in living. It's, it's, it's skill in living. It's spiritual death perception. It gives you the ability to see the circumstances of your life and the consequences that are coming before you step into them so that you won't step into them if it's, if it's the wrong consequence. And I think the Bible, again, the Bible expects us, if, they, if, we're, if we're thoughtful people, that we'll pursue wisdom. And so back to Colossians two, verse three. Paul really here is here drawing on this Old Testament illusion of of wisdom. And verse 3 says again, "In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Hidden means it means deposited. Okay? Paul says Jesus again is the repository of wisdom and knowledge. And so if you're pursuing wisdom, that search will ultimately Put you into connection with Jesus. I'm concerned. I'm. I'm I, I believe that. Does that believe that if you're a God, if if by His grace God has given you just smarts and you don't believe in Jesus at all? Now some of you are are in college and grad school. Some of you out there are just brilliant people. Okay, and most of you know really smart people outside of the church world, in academia, in the corporate world, in our government that are brilliant and they don't care a thing about God. And so I'm not saying that you can't be intelligent, that you can't have wisdom outside of God. But what I am saying is this, is that if you want to have true wisdom, true wisdom from a biblical perspective can only be found in Jesus. I like what Paul, I like what Sam Storm says. He suggests that the true knowledge of the ultimate meaning of human existence is found only in the light of the identity and redemptive accomplishment of Jesus Christ. Insight into the character of God and his relationship with his creation is found only by looking to the person and work of Jesus. The nature and eternal destiny of the human soul, the grounds on which we differentiate between good and evil, the wisdom of God's ways in the world, as well as the pathway to reconciliation with him, are all tethered to Jesus. If we know him, we know them. This is in his book, The Hope of glory, And so how do we keep ourselves from being swayed by doubt and persuasive arguments? I think Paul is pointing us to Jesus. He's saying pursue Jesus because wisdom and knowledge are in him. He's saying aim for Jesus because when you aim for him, you will get a little bit of the wisdom that you seek. And so we're going to conclude in, conclude in verse five. Paul says, for though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to, to see your good order. And the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul isn't talking about voodoo here. He's talking about mysticism. Basically, he's talking about union with Christ. Because he's in Christ and we're in Christ, or the Colossians are in Christ. He he has a connection to us. So though he's not here, he really is here because he can sense from the Spirit of God in him uh, how we're doing, how they're doing. You know, Paul, Paul is ending this. You know, he started this this section of of his, of his letter really on a negative note. He's saying you know, you're being swayed by some things that you should, shouldn't be swayed by. And as we go on in chapter two, we're going to find out that they really were being tripped up. They were being talked about mysticism and worship of angels and following certain days and things like that. And he's saying you're getting tripped up by persuasive arguments that you should not be tripped up with if you were true, if you truly understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if you were following it closely. And so he insists on a positive note. He's saying, you know, that although there's some false teachers influencing you, I have hope. I have hope. In your good order and your firmness, these are military. This is a military phrase, military metaphor. It's another way of saying that he had confidence in their well-ordered behavior. And what he meant by that is he saw and he heard from Epaphras signs that they were reflecting the values of Jesus, that they were aligned with the biblical, tr- biblical tradition, that their d- daily habits uh, resembled those who were following Jesus, that they had unwavering obedience to God and how they lived their life. And so I think he was encouraged by that. And so I'll conclude with with two questions for you. The first is, I mean, what doubts do you need to be um, what doubts do you need to be defeated de- de- need to be defeated in your life? Are there things that you inherently, um, just because you're reading Scripture and being inquisitive, which you are supposed to be, are there things that you're doubting? Are there people that are coming and helping you to have doubts about Scripture? The second question would be, what persuasive arguments against Christianity uh, have you stumped? Are there, are there people that are persuading you because of their great intellect? Are you reading things outside of the Bible, and it's challenging you in regards to um, what you believe and why. You know, I'm, uh, I always come back to Mark 9, this account that Jesus has with a father whose son was possessed by a demon. He said, he said his son had a mute spirit. This father brought his son to Jesus, to ha- brought his son to the disciples to have them heal him. He they were unable. And so Jesus comes on the scene and the man presents the son and says he has a mute spirit. Uh, he's been like this since he was a child. And he he he, he kind of goes into fits. And the, the, the demon throws him on the ground, causes him to convulse so much so that he's almost been drowned. He's almost been burned up in fire. And uh, and so uh, Jesus just basically says, well, believe, he said, all things are possible for those who believe. And the man, these, these words are, are precious for me because whenever I doubt, I say these words. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. You know, sometimes we have doubts, but God has answers. And so don't don't give pray. Don't fall prey to persuasive arguments. Don't fall prey to those those questions that, that come against you that you just can't figure out and that make you doubt. Ask God to help you. Lord, I believe Let that be the confession of your mouth. Help my unbelief. You know that any time that we have doubts about our faith, it's not always sin. It's not always bad. But I would tell you when we doubt the thing that we're doubting in doubting against is it's not necessarily scripture. It's the gospel. Okay? The gospel sometimes pre- presents doubts for us. But our challenge is is to believe more. In the gospel. And so. We, we gain more of the gospel when we express faith in God and we will repent. And I think what this guy was doing in Mark nine is in a roundabout way. He was repenting for the ways that he didn't believe the thing that he should believe that Jesus could actually save. And then he asked, he expressed faith. Lord, I'm doubting. I repent. But would you give me more faith? You should do that, too. When you doubt, when life is not going the way it should, and the Bible's not the things in the Bible, the things that you think are promises, and God's not holding true to his side of the bargain, when people are coming against you, when life is just beating you down, and the persuasive arguments against Christianity, you're, you're leaning, tilting your head and leaning in and saying, ah, that might be true. Faith and repentance. believe the gospel more. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, help us strengthen and encourage our hearts against all those things that would come against us. When life is not quite right, Lord, when when even when we're trying to do good and good doesn't happen, I pray that you would encourage us by your word. God, that we would see the example of, of scripture, of even the people that doubt it, and it would give us faith. Lord, I pray that you would invoke in us uh, a desire to search out, to pursue wisdom. Wisdom is found in Jesus. And so help us today, Lord God. Help us to see the repository of wisdom and knowledge are in your son. God, we're not praying for osmosis. We're praying that you would make us diligent people. God, that we would be faithful to your scriptures. God, that you would see in us the values of those who are people of faith. God, that we would be obedient to all that you would have us to do. Knit us together as your church. Cause people to be attracted to your gospel by the love they see in us. This diverse tapestry, this beauty that you're putting together. We couldn't have done this by ourselves. You did. Help us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.